This is Evolutionary Radio. This is your host, Trevor Kuritsen. We've recorded over 200 awesome episodes. If you'd like to listen to past episodes, you can go to evolutionary.org forward slash podcasts. Steve, do you want to do the honors of introducing today's guest? Yeah, we have another really, really smart guy, um, Dave Tate. Um, you probably have seen a lot of his writings and stuff on the internet. Dave, how you doing, buddy? Great. How are you guys doing? Couldn't, could, couldn't be better. So Dave, you've got a very interesting background. The first thing I want you to get into is that a lot of people probably don't know this. You actually did bodybuilding for a couple of years. Yeah. So talk to us about your background, your powerlifting background, your bodybuilding background, and how this all started for you. What got you interested in lifting weights in the first place? Uh, a, tr- a troubled kid. You know, I guess that would be the first way to describe that is, you know, I was a kid that used to get beat up all the time, special ed kid and so forth. And then my uncle bought me a weight set for Christmas. I think I was probably 12 at the time. And they were the old cement plates, you know, plastic and cement kind of things. And I would spend three or four hours training every day in the basement. And my dad noticed that I had a passion for that. And it was something that I continuously, you know, stuck to. So he was friends with a, another guy in town who was the chief of narcotics that was a member of Finley Barbell Club. So at 13 years of age, I was thrown into, not thrown into, but introduced or put into a private powerlifting gym which at the time I didn't even know what powerlifting was. You know, I was a wrestler that sucked, you know, a football player that wasn't that good. Um, And basically an athlete that wasn't that good of an athlete. And then when I was introduced to powerlifting, it was probably four months and I, they had me in my first meet and I loved it. You know, it's, I sucked, but I loved it. And it was, it was the, the powerlifting, wasn't run the same way it is now where now everything's run in flights where you say i take you take your temp then you know everybody else takes their temp and then it comes back to you again so that would be a flight back then it was kind of round robin so they started the weight at a certain amount and the weight never went back down so since i sucked and i was uh, i remember the first meet i think my opener squat was 350 and then i had to follow myself at 375 and then follow myself at 400 and then the next lifter who was a female went at 485 and um then it went up from there so i was i knew at that point that this is a sport i need to get involved in because if i'm getting my ass kicked absolutely destroyed by women then i can only get better you know, I can't get worse, you know, it, it all, and I, I kind of knew that with other sports I was involved in, but it just didn't pan out that way with those sports. So competitive powerlifting became, you know, part of my sporting life, you know, athletic life, I guess you should say. And it made me a better wrestler. And it definitely made me a better football player as well. So it carried over and it changed my it changed my life. So it changed everything about me. So I went from the kid that used to get fucked with all the time to the kid nobody wanted to fuck with. So by the time I finished high school, I had a 700 squat, 500 bench, and a 640 deadlift at around 242. And then went to college. You know, kind of bumped around to a few different universities before I figured out what I really wanted to do. And I had a hard time finding a powerlifting crew to train with. You know, it's it's easy to train by yourself for powerlifting, but I was introduced to the sport and pretty much my whole life in powerlifting has always been with a crew of, of guys. So it's, it's a technical sport. So you, I always like to have those eyes on me from that technical standpoint. So it just so happened that my roommate at the time 
was training for the Mr. Ohio. And the gym I came from, man, it was a small 400 square foot gym in a really small town. I mean, we had like a lat pull down machine, squat racks, deadlift platforms. I, I can't, I, there was no other machine in there that I could think of. You know, it was all just barbells, dumbbells, and benches. And so I was kind of intrigued with the bodybuilding thing because I was reading muscle and fitness and all that stupid shit too. But I never wanted to do any of it because it, it wasn't in the gym for one thing. And I really didn't care what I looked like. I just cared how strong I was. Now that I was in more of a, still private gyms, but more commercial gyms, it's like, wow, you know, what are all these machines? You know, I need to do this shit, you know, because it opened like a whole nother world of holy shit, you know, it's. How do you, you know, it's just to try it and to do it. So I did compete in bodybuilding and did three total shows. I hated it. I loved the training. I loved the training aspect. I even liked the discipline of the diet aspect, even though back then it was nothing like, you know, in recent years where I've dieted down and, you know, it, it was completely different, but it was still discipline. And, but there was no payoff for me. You know, it's, you're, I'm standing on stage and it's like, this, this is stupid. You know, it's, it's stupid. You know, it just, it, it never had any type of impact on me, like standing up with a record squat, you know, or, you know, straining through something. And, and the guys I was training with at the time kind of put in my mind, well, the only reason that you're not satisfied with this whole thing is because you, you, you place next to last, you know, it's, you got to win, you know, to really know. And I kind of got that from powerlifting because I did compete in a couple teenage meets and did, I won those. And then I started competing in class two and below meets and then eventually open meets. And to me, you know, in powerlifting, had I not won or had early success, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much. But I also was smart enough to know that once I had that early success, I had to put myself in the bottom of the barrel. And I always did compete as an open as well, even from a teenager, from my first meet. The guys I trained with made me do that. And I think it was a, a way of kind of keeping you humble, but also a way of making sure you always have bigger aspirations. So I, I never thought I was the strongest teenager around. I, I never gave a shit because it was always my weight class. So... I did two more shows and I ended up finally winning the show and it still sucked. You know, I remember, I remember standing on stage clearly, you know, and you know, the, the lights come on a little bit more, and, you know, looking out into the audience and everybody back then was wearing, you know, like T Michael boat neck fucking sweatshirts and crazy wear, you know, funky design pants. And, you know, like 90% of the crowd was dudes. And I'm like, man, I'm up here in my underwear posing in front of a bunch of dudes wearing fucking T. Michael sweatshirts and like, what, what, what is this? You know, this is nothing, you know, and it to me, it was, I would rather stand up with a record squat in front of five people, you know, than win a bodybuilding show in front of a thousand. It just didn't have that. It wasn't my thing, but I earned a lot of respect for the sport and I love the train. This is the fucked up part. I love the training more than I like powerlifting training. And I think because there's a greater room for air. So you you can kind of go off path and do a lot of stupid shit, you know, and do strip sets and all that. The stuff I like to do where when it's powerlifting, you got to be really regimented and everything has to have a very specific purpose where the flip side of that and bodybuilding everything diet wise has to have a specific purpose. So it's, it's a, it's a really strange dichotomy because in one, you have a lot of leverage and a lot of freedom in the training, but almost none with the diet. And the other, you got a lot of leverage and freedom in the diet, but almost none in the training. And so during my time of bodybuilding, it was maybe two years, possibly three, my body fat dropped. Uh, my lean body mass went up probably 25 pounds and my gym lifts were, were freaky. You know, I, during that whole time, I didn't, I didn't do singles on squats. I don't even think I deadlifted at all. 
Um, I didn't do any kind of single on the bench press because for bodybuilding, it didn't make any point. You know, there was no point. But I remember doing stupid shit like uh, I would do a down set on the bench press at 315 and ask whoever was lifting me off how old they were. And then I would do however old they were. So my record was 38. Yeah, I knew better than to ask somebody that was 50. But, you know, the 30, I remember the 38-year-old dude, I was thinking he was like 30, you know, 32. And I was like, ah, shit. But um, just with behind the neck press with 405 for triples, you know, incline presses of, you know, 455 for five, just crazy shit compared to what I was doing when I was powerlifting. Uh, I remember squatting 700 for 15. And, you know, my best squat powerlifting before that was 745, I believe. And so I'm thinking, holy shit, I get back into powerlifting. I should squat 985 pounds, you know. And as soon as I that last bodybuilding show, um, funny story with that is I was training. The, the, it was the first show in a series of three shows that were supposed to lead to the Ohio. I knew after that first one, that was it. So my, they come to pick me up the train that next morning and I'm basically in a sugar coma, laying on the floor of my shitty apartment with ice cream containers and chips and Oreos and just bags of all kinds of shit all over the place. And my um, training partner kicked the uh, empty Oreo package in my face and said, well, I guess you're done with the bodybuilding. And I said, you know what, I'll keep training with you guys until, you know, the, the shows are over, but then I'm the fuck out of here. You know, I, I gotta go back to powerlifting. And then when I went back uh, 12, 16 week cycle later, I go to a meet and I couldn't even do the lifts I was doing when I was in high school. You know, so I put on 20 pounds of lean body mass and got weaker and was madder than fuck. And at the time I was studying exercise science and nutrition, I've always been passionate about learning about these things, but that kind of set me down another road of, you know, how is it that you can put on so much muscle mass and get so much stronger with repetitions, but not get stronger with that one rep, you know, the, the one rep max, what really mattered. And that, that was the beginning of of really talking more with Louis Simmons. You know, Louis was a guy that was, even when I was competing as a teenager, he was always kind of at the same meets in the warm-up room. And powerlifting was real cool because the, the, the older veteran guys, they take time to help me out. You know, and I, I didn't know what the fuck, you know, I, I knew what I knew from the gym, you know, which was, you know, your, your knowledge is, is limited, limited to the best guy in the gym or the best coach in the gym. You know, there, there was no internet back then. So now you go to a meet, your knowledge gets expanded because now it's limited to who's the, who's the strongest or who's the smartest person in the meet. But it's up to you to be able to find a way to initiate conversations with that guy. And as a teenager, that was really hard, you know, to do. But a lot of these guys like Louis Simmons, John Florio, John Black, you know, some other people that most of listeners are going to have no idea who they are you know, would come over and say, hey, why don't you try this? Why don't you try this? You know, do this. And Louie was one that was pretty consistent about it. So when I got in this bump, you know, I remember him being in the warm-up room for the meeting, walking over to him because he said something about me, and you got a lot bigger since I saw you last. And I'm, yeah, but I'm fucking, I'm the same strength. I'm probably weaker. I'm like, I don't understand how the hell this happened. And then he started talking to me about, you know, a max effort method dynamic and how, how muscles get strong and how, you know, different contractile properties and so forth. And that all made sense to me because before the bodybuilding thing, I never really did any type of bodybuilding training. And I, I do think there can be a hybrid, you know, for people that are more, that aren't competitors that are looking to get big and strong. And we all know that there are bodybuilders that are super strong and there's power lifters that have a great ton of muscle but those are usually the outliers because you're you're usually a product of your training so, so Dave, let's let's touch on that a bit because you often hear bodybuilders tell young guys if you want to get big you gotta get strong as fuck 
right? They say, focus on the big three, get your bench up, get your squat up, get your deadlift up. Based on your experiences, do you think that's good advice to a young bodybuilder? I think it depends upon who you're actually speaking to because to me, technique is actually has to come before everything else. But I'm coming from, you know, a powerlifting background to where, you know, bad habits can be developed very soon and very early. If if you're dealing with a kid that is, you know, five foot eleven and a hundred and forty pounds, they just gotta get fucking bigger. You know, it's bottom of line, you know, even if their technique sucks, if they get bigger and stronger, their technique will get better because technique does increase with strength. So I don't think it's misguided information. I think that, you know, somebody that's new to the weight room, they don't really know, you know, they're just there to train, work out, maybe look better. You know, they, they don't, they, they weren't thrown into a gym like I was. And so here, you're going to be a power lifter or here, you're going to be a bodybuilder. So there, there is a time period, you know, and I don't know how long it is for most people, maybe three, five years of kind of getting their feet wet before they really decide what they want to do. You know, it's, they kind of got to get over the newbie gains, you know, and realize that, oh, shit, this is going to be a little bit more difficult than I thought. But I do feel that putting a lot of emphasis on the compound movements and getting stronger is very important because that will add the muscle and it will help with their technique. But at the same time, I, I'm one of the few probably that thinks that beginners should also do isolation movements, you know, tricep kickbacks, uh, you know, concentration curls, things that are very, very simple to, for you to feel the muscle and isolate the muscle where, you know, everybody makes fun of concentration curls, but you know, if you get your arm stuck in your leg the right way and you get in the right position, you have no choice but to feel your bicep do that movement and only your bicep. So you begin to understand what your body feels like under tension because regardless of how, if, if they're gonna go down the avenue of any competitive strength athlete, strongman, bodybuilding, powerlifting, or whatever it's gonna be, I think they should be able to have enough control of the muscles to be able to flex their pecs, you know, flex their bicep, and not like posing, but just like sitting there contract, like you bounce your, you know, bounce your pecs and so forth. Um, because that muscular control is going to have great importance as you start to run into sticking points. Because if all you know how to do is to push weight, but your triceps are the limiting factor, you're not going to know how to better engage your triceps to help with the lockout. Or if you're trying to build a better physique and your lats are lagging, but you don't even know what it feels like to get a lat pump, you're not going to be able to bring your lats up because your biceps could be doing too much of the movement and you don't even know that's happening. What about diet? Do you think a new lifter, he should just eat as much as possible and try to put on weight, even if it's like a dirty ball? Or do you think that they should stick uh, with anything? Year, year, you know what? Years ago, I would have said yes, you know, that it doesn't really matter. But now the, 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 the dirty bulk is, is it's worse. You know, where even say 20 years ago, if you said, you know, just eat everything, probably half of what they ate was still going to be decent food. You know what I'm saying? They'd be making hamburgers or, you know, eating a ton of eggs and then having fucking waffles and syrup and all the other kind of stuff. Right now, there's so many, you know, foods that come in wrappers and boxes that if you start to tell people just eat whatever you want, they may not eat a single food that's a real food, you know, and that becomes a little bit of a problem. So um, that's, that, that's something really smart, Dave, that I never thought about because, you know, that dirty balking era, that was about 20 years ago. Yes. And people would say, dude, whatever your mom made for dinner, just eat as much of it as possible. And then three hours later, have a second dinner with as much of it as possible chances are your mom was probably cooking like ground beef with pasta 
maybe some like vegetables. Like it was at least decent food. You know what you know what I mean? It probably wasn't the cleanest thing ever, but at least yes. you can get some good protein. She wasn't bringing home McDonald's and little seeds. Yeah, like it was it's probably you know maybe like ground beef and baked potatoes and maybe some salad or or something. But yeah. nowadays you can go buy those microwave or whatever craft dinner microwave helper hamburger helper things and you're getting zero nutrition exactly and i think that you know obviously to gain weight you have to be in a calorie surplus but i think now that it, it's very possible for somebody to be in a calorie surplus but still have nutritional deficiencies you know because the food is all in wrappers and you know and boxes you know, and I'm not saying to avoid that entirely if somebody's trying to gain weight, but they still have to have decent foods in there because you have to have the nutrients. You know, it's, there's, you know, macro nutrients, which are your carbohydrates, fats, proteins, you know, and then there's micro, which is the shit that's in the food, and vitamins, minerals, and all, you know, the shit they haven't even discovered yet. You know, when you, when you go from a real food you know, to something that's put in a, in a box, then a wrapper, then the microwave. Well, yeah, you also have a lot of ingredients in there that really haven't been discovered yet, but they're words you can't even pronounce, you know, so it's, it's just filler, filler bullshit. So I'm not saying it needs to be a clean ball because for a lot of people, especially younger people, I don't know if they can eat that much. You know, it's the volume of food it still comes down to, I, I like to call it calories per bite, you know, so if, you know, somebody wants to eat ice cream, you know, to bulk up, well, how many calories are in that spoon? Well, now if you put chocolate syrup on there, you just added more calories. If you put grape nuts on there, you just added more calories. If you put in, um, in caramel on there, you added more calories, you know, so you can double your calories per bite just by being aware of that you know and cereal the same way pasta the same way any of that stuff you can just find ways to add more calories to that so yeah, yeah. i was gonna say uh, so you know we'll get we'll get there's a lot of questions that we have from users about diet and training we'll definitely get to that but um tell us a little bit about elite fts you've got a quarter million followers on instagram you got a lot of social media followers which is unusual you know, for someone who isn't like a millennial, you know, because the millennials, it's easy to get a quarter million followers, but someone who's a little older, you know, it's, it's not as easy. So what, what's growing your popularity and tell us what elite FTS is for those dude that have never heard of it. I founded elite FTS 20 years ago. So this is our 20th year in business. And the reason for founding the company uh, to, to boil it all down is it was first a Q and A. You know, so it was me answering questions because I was doing consulting on strength and conditioning at the time. And so we put a platform up that was a Q&A platform. And then through that Q&A platform, people started asking me where they could get certain products I was talking about. If it was uh, bands, different books and so forth. And so from that, it became, you know, hell, I'm, I'm referring all this stuff out. And at the same time, Louis Simmons wanted to get out of a lot of the accessory items that he was selling. So we kind of took over that part and that's what spawned the store. But throughout the 20 years, just through the website on our Q and A, which is no longer on the site because social media kind of made that obsolete, obsolete. Uh, before that all hit, we had well over a million questions answered throughout the Q and A. We have, I think close to 10,000 articles that are on the site, our site traffic is, can range anywhere between two to three million per month. And that's mostly content oriented. So we've been putting out, I like to say, I've been putting out free content or doing content marketing before content marketing was even a thing. And the reason for that was, as I spoke about earlier, all those guys that helped me out in warm up rooms, all the coaches that helped me through adversity and so forth. It's just paying back for what they did for me because I feel I owe it to them to be able to keep doing that, especially in today's world where everybody wants to charge for every little thing, you know, so they'll learn something from a website for free and then turn around, package it and charge somebody else for it, which is bullshit. So we don't charge for content. We don't have a paywall. We don't have any of that shit. So it's 
I was probably more of a late adapter when it comes to social media because I don't want to build Instagram followers. I want to bring people to our website because that's where the best content is. It's Facebook when it first came out. I was kind of the same way with that. I'm like, I don't, I don't understand why everybody's paying all this fucking money to try to get people to like their Facebook page. It's like that's sending them away from where you want them to go. You know, I want them, you know, to come to the site. And now I think we're starting to get to a point where, you know, companies can use these platforms and for to 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 pull customers, but it's still nowhere near where it needs to be for the time that a lot of people would spend on it. So it's, I try not to spend more than an hour a day. You know, if, if I do a Q&A type of thing, maybe two, because anything more than that, I can't justify the time expense compared to creating content, articles and stuff for Elite FTS. So that, that's basically that is, you know, Elite FTS, it's, it's a huge content hub, but it's also a store that sells, you know, the highest quality strength equipment we've outfitted you know, universities, weight rooms, private gyms, all the way up to top end gyms. We won't sell a piece of equipment unless a, the way I like to put it, if a thousand pound squatter can't use it, I'm not gonna sell it. Because if a thousand pound squatter can use it, then anybody that squats less can. I'd rather do that than make something that is specifically built for a 300 pound squatter, knowing that they're never gonna squat more. So you, you, the quality stays higher, you know, that way. And the, our demographic is a little bit different than a lot of the demographics that you find on social media. Our, our demographic would be people who place training as one of their top four priorities in life. So the people that I have represent the company and the team and so forth all kind of fit that mold. If they're not there yet, the, the customer or potential customer or the demographic, then we're probably not the site for them because you're not going to come and find a beginner's guide to a bench press or the five best exercises for your bicep. I don't give a fuck about that. There's a million other places that do that. When I came into business, there were a million other magazines that put out that kind of shit every single month over and over and over but there wasn't very many people putting out the content that was geared more for those people who really give a shit about their training and then hit a sticking point. Because typically what happens is they'll, they'll train really hard for a couple of years and then get stuck and they'll think, well, shit, what do I do now? And then they start jumping around from program to program, not making any progress or not making any gains, or they'll start taking steroids or the, you know, they, they start other shit you know, instead of learning how to get over the sticking point, which regardless of what they do, you know, they're always going to keep running into other sticking points. And that's kind of the whole point of strength training is to learn how to overcome sticking points, because in life, those are called adversity. And if you can learn that in the gym, it carries over to life. So that's a big part of training as well. So Dave, let's dig into that. Advanced lifter. Let's say intermediate lifter is going to become advanced. Why are the main reasons they're hitting sticking points? Um, usually, from what I see, it, it's technical. You know, 80% of the sticking points that I see are usually technically related. You know, the technique's just a little bit off, and if you can fix that, then the lifts will go up. This is for powerlifting. The lifts will go up. Um, after that, you're going to deal with physical. There's a muscle weakness that if you bring that muscle up, say the lockout on the bench press, you know, their lockout sucks. Well, everybody's typically going to say, well, you got to pound your triceps or you got to pound your shoulders. I want to see what the hell your bar path looks like because maybe your bench just looks like shit. And if you fix that, then you're not only going to have a stronger bench, but you're going to have a safer bench. That's usually the problem most of the time. Even when you're dealing with the advanced lifters, that muscle weakness will lead to a technical flaw. So... It, it, they kind of go hand in hand the higher up the scale you go. I love working with the people that are at the highest end because I like figuring out how to overcome that. 
because it is going to be at that point it's going to be very individual very specific and you know kind of takes the trained eye but for the intermediates that are running into sticking points powerlifting related it's almost always technical related bodybuilding related it's almost always some type of diet related issue almost always how is powerlifting doing as a sport as right now with bodybuilding we kind of have people bodybuilding is kind of dying you know more people are interested in doing the classic physique the men's physique um i think a lot of that's the instagram gratification you know in order to build enough muscle in order to have a nice bodybuilding physique it's going to take 10 years whereas you know you can take two or three years of training hop on some board shorts and you got enough enough physique to win a, a decent physique to win a pro card at least do well in competing how about powerlifting has have you seen the sport grow the last couple of years or do you think it's kind of dying i think the 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 serious more competitive end is kind of dying but the sport overall is growing that's it it's kind of following a little bit behind bodybuilding you know and and has for a few decades now because say 20 years ago you had a lot of people that would go into the gym that trained for bodybuilding but never had any aspiration to compete as a bodybuilder so it's jokingly we would call them closet bodybuilders you know they're pretend bodybuilders and they they been around probably ever since you know 40 years or whatever it was but you never saw that with powerlifting ever you know if you saw a group of guys or a group of girls or just a group all together squatting in the corner they were pretty much all training for a powerlifting meet now over the past 10 years and it's really been since raw powerlifting's become so popular as well it's easier to get into the sport so there's more recreational powerlifters so to say people who train like powerlifters but don't compete and probably never will and i would say you know say 10 15 years ago that might have been 5% of the sport or 5% of what you would consider powerlifting now it's probably 95% so that turnaround so when people ask me questions like is powerlifting growing i almost need to come back and say are you asking about the perception of powerlifting or are you asking about the actual sport because the actual number of competitors probably hasn't grown that much but the number of people who are aware about powerlifting and train like powerlifters that's probably increased anywhere between 4 and 600% so um You know, we want to talk about a little bit about the drug use, steroid use and stuff. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about what powerlifters are using these days at these competitions to get as strong as possible. You're never going to know, you know, unless you personally know one of these guys, and this is usually a topic that I I don't like to get into because I've been around and I'm a name in the sport and I've been around for a very long time. So if if I come across as being 100% pro steroid everybody should take steroid and one person decides to go on because of something that I said I don't want that responsibility. I also don't want to be the person that's going to come out and say steroids aren't going to help you, you know, there's always risk and all that other stuff because I don't want to be the person that's going to talk somebody out of it either. You know, because that's to me it's a personal decision. that somebody has to really think about and I don't think of I don't think I know for a fact people today are not thinking about it as much as that they should they just think it's part of bodybuilding they think it's part of weight training you join a gym you start taking shit you know you, you before you even think about competing or anything else and what they're doing is they're 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 actually doing themselves a disservice by doing that and what i'm speaking about here is going on too soon right i do think that again it's still a personal choice but i think that you have to have some training experience to where you you've had to have these sticking points and work through the sticking points before you ever think about having that conversation with yourself 
because what's going to happen is that that drug will get you past that sticking point. But there is another one waiting. And the easiest sticking points to overcome are the first ones on the road. It's just like anything in life, right? We all go through a lot of adversity in our life. Some people get hit with major, major shit very young, you know, but most people, the adversity gets a little harder the older that we get, you know, and you build up, you know, ways to be able to cope with it, ways to be able to overcome with that. So if you relate it back to training, if the only way you know how to overcome a sticking point is sticking a needle in your ass, then it's just going to lead to taking more and more shit, which over a period of time begins to work backwards for you. But to directly answer the question, you know, how much is somebody taking that really depends upon how well the stuff works for them. I've known people personally, you know, over my whole competitive career that they would take ridiculously small amounts, like shit that I wouldn't even believe. Like two cc's of test a week and 10, 10 milligrams of Evo. They were five milligram tabs at the time and get strong as fuck. And you're like, there's no fucking way. I mean, that's like a TRT dose. There's no way. But their body just responded so freaking well to it that it was almost fucking unfair. Then I knew other people that would take boatloads of shit. I mean, three or four full syringes a day and go absolutely nowhere. So when that's why I think it's so hard for people to say, here's you should take two grams a week or you should take one gram a week because everybody's body responds differently to drugs, right? I mean, look at how many people are dying from heroin because of one dose that's wrong or fentanyl or whatever that's in there. You know, any, so it's, if they're on that path, they got to kind of figure it out for themselves. But unless they're getting it from, you know, a doctor or an HRT clinic, the other bit of advice I put out there is assume everything you're taking is fake. Dave, how much do you think genetics play a role? I'm not sure if you know who Larry Wheels is, but I'm watching yeah. some of this guy's videos on YouTube. And he's, he's in his 20s. And he's deadlifting like 800 pounds for reps. And he's just like, he's, he's insane. But genetics are a huge role. I mean, it plays a huge role, but the guy still works, right? He's still got to work hard. And sometime down the road, he's going to have adversity. He's probably had to overcome some of his adversity as well. And you don't know what his adversity is. I mean, that's, that's the thing with social media sometimes. You don't know if he's had sticking points to overcome because all you're seeing is the shit that he wants you to see. You know, he controls the narrative, you know, which is better than a magazine. So I guess, you know, in that regard, it's better. But there, there's always going to be those people. In, in bodybuilding, we've, we've seen it pretty regular because it's had a bigger reach than powerlifting has. With powerlifting having this bigger reach now, and social media has helped because the digital footprint now for powerlifting is way bigger than what the magazine footprint was, so to say, which is going to draw in more people. So if you know, you look at somebody like Larry or, you know, there's, there's a bunch of them out there right now. And you wonder, man, what if he wrestled? You know, what if he was a, played football? You know, what if his skills were in that? He would probably be a Division One football player, you know, but he ended up in powerlifting, which is great for powerlifting because he'll raise the board across, you know, raise the, the bar across the board. But it's a different world today. So if you are somebody like Larry and Ben Pollock's another one, there's, I mean, there's, there's a few out there that are just doing crazy shit. You don't make money powerlifting. You don't make money bodybuilding. So they get to a certain point and it's like, you know what? If I start focusing on my social media, then maybe I can create a business out of this. You know, so you almost can't blame them if they make a pivot and only focus on social media where the meathead in me would would love to see these guys throw their fucking phones away, get off social media and just tear the sport up. But you got to be a realist and be able to look at things, you know, from every perspective. Like, well, if he did that, yeah, he'd probably be one of the all time greatest powerlifters ever. But what's he going to get from it? You know, nothing. You know, the same way all the other all time greats got nothing except great memories from it. So 
that 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 creates a, another really weird aspect, you know, that that I think hurts the top end of powerlifting and hurts the top end of bodybuilding because there are other avenues that they can pivot off of to be able to create a future for themselves, which is better than what the sport can create. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does for sure. Uh, you're very deep knowledge. You're a very intelligent guy. I can tell David, how old are you now? 50. Okay. You're about 50. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, you've been doing this a long time. You've been lifting since you were a teenager, like you said at the beginning. Can you give us some age numbers that people can kind of, um, you know, kind of get an idea of what's going to happen? Because I'm almost 40 and I noticed probably in my mid thirties, my body started breaking down, you mm -hmm. know, things start hurting more. Um, you know, I'm not able to go to the gym as often as I want. I have to stop myself from going to the gym some days because I'm like, you know what? I should probably have an extra rest day. You know what? Let me ask you this. What age do you think that when it comes to strength, that strength peaks and starts dropping? Because a lot of people in the gym notice the strongest guys in your gym are typically guys in their 40s, even early 50s. But there's got to be an age where really – you can't improve anymore. So can you tell us yeah. what your opinion is on that? And also can you tell us about what, with body breaking down, wear and tear, if you've been lifting since you were a teenager, what age can people start expecting our bodies to start breaking down a little bit? Cause we see it in pro sports. Like it's very rare. I mean, Frank Gore is like 35 and he's still playing running back, but it's unheard of for a 35 year old to mm -hmm. still play running back in the NFL because of the, the ground and pound. So tell us a little bit about your opinion on age. I think that training age is what needs to be looked at first. Like how long have you actually been doing the activity or what did you do before that? So say you take a, a football player that starts powerlifting. Well, they still had a lot of wear and tear before they started powerlifting. But if you take somebody that really hasn't been that active sport wise, and then they start weight training in their 30s, their wear and tear is gonna happen a little bit later than what somebody who's been doing it since they were 12. So if they started training, and then it's what intent were they training with? So if they spent 10 years just kind of training like a gym bro, they probably weren't doing a lot of wear and tear. You know, if they spent 10 years training with intent, to, you know, for a strength sport, where you're training harder, the loads are harder, the wear and tear is gonna be greater. I think the wear and tear is going to be greater in powerlifting than it will be in bodybuilding because the movement pattern is so repetitious. You know, bodybuilders don't have to squat every single week, you know, or the variations of the leg train. There's, there's a lot of different movement patterns a bodybuilder trains in where a powerlifter is basically just training in the sagittal plane. But I've seen Louis Simmons squat 920 at 52. Donnie Thompson broke the all-time world record at 3,000 pounds. Um, and he was in his 40s, like 44. But I can say they're outliers. Uh, from what I've seen, if somebody's training with intent, usually they start to get in their 40s. Recovery is going to start to be an issue. Wear and tear is going to start to be an issue. But the thing with wear and tear is a lot of that has to – I retired because my shoulder needs replaced. And I've also had both hips replaced now. But see, I didn't know that I had a genetic predisposition for this because at that time, my parents didn't have their shit replaced. You know, it wasn't until I was 40 that my mom had to have her back fused and her both hips replaced and my dad's shoulder replaced. I mean, between both of them, there's like 10 fucking replacements. But then it's like, oh shit. You know, I got a strong genetic predisposition for arthroarthritis. I'm fucked, but you know what? I'm already in it now, and I'm already kind of fucked up. So let's run, let's run it as, you know, as long as we can. The question is, if somebody's passionate about what they're doing and there's purpose behind what they're doing, they're going to keep doing it. They're going to find a way to keep doing it. So it's how can you do it in the safest manner possible? for the longest time possible because I had to leave the sport because I can't hold a bar anymore. You know, that wasn't my terms, you know, so anybody I'm working with, I want them to leave the sport on their own terms. Um, 
the tricky thing with bodybuilding, powerlifting, strongman, and strength sports is, and this is not a slam on the division at all, but the fucking masters divisions. It's you know, and in, in the NFL, if you make it to let's say let's just say football, right? You play football, and you're a decent high school football player, but you're not good enough to play college. Guess what? You're not playing football after high school. You're fucking done. You're retired. If you're good enough to get a scholarship or good enough to play at the next level, you'll play for another four years. But if you're not good enough for the NFL, you're done. You know, if you make it to the NFL, you might last two years, three years, maybe 10 years. But somebody else is telling you you're done. Now, when you're a bodybuilder or a powerlifter and you're competing in all these different divisions, you know, say you avoid the open division, which I don't like, by the way. But if you're in the open division, you always kind of know where you're ranked. As soon as people start slipping in the open division or if they never enter the open division, they're always placing, well, they're always placing first, but in powerlifting, there's so many fucking divisions, you're gonna place first no matter what you do anyhow. So there's no, the sports or the, the strength sports don't have a predetermined exit plan to basically get rid of lifters. And that's probably a good thing because there's not that many you know, to begin with, but to fall back on what I think the listeners are going to want to know is for yourself, you're starting to break down, you know, what are the things that you can do to try to extend that a little bit? Um, typically adding a little bit more warm up in than what you would normally do would be a really good idea, you know, longer rest periods, you know, and not longer rest periods, but longer frequency times. So if you squat once a week, maybe you got to squat once every two weeks and you'll actually squat better every two weeks than if you did every week, you know? So, and this works as I work with lifters, you know, I don't charge lifters. I got a gym here in our warehouse, but I do work with lifters on the higher end and the younger they are, I have to increase the frequency. You know, they, not because it's just fun for them. That's what they need to progress. The older they are, I have to decrease the frequency. So it's, it's a weird dynamic, but you really can't put an age on it and say when you're 40, you're fucked because there's always people to prove them wrong. But I will tell people that, you know, if it's going to motivate them, like if it would motivate you, if I told you, look at 40, you're fucked. You can't get lean. You can't get bigger. And if I know you personally and you're going to think, fuck you, and then you go do it, well, then I'll say it. But, I mean, we all age. You know what I'm saying? We, and it's just finding a way to deal with it. Dave, can you give our listeners some golden nuggets on ways to improve recovery? I mean, you hear all the time things like hot, cold showers, ice baths, cryotherapy. Have you found any of those to be really effective? Yes. I think right now the best thing they could do is to do nothing. I think there needs to be an overcorrection. Um when I was towards the latter end of my career, a powerlifting career, I really had to focus on recovery. And Mel Sif was still alive at the time. He's the one that authored Super Training and probably one of the greatest minds in strength and conditioning that's ever lived. I used to do seminars with him. And we spoke one night till, we probably stayed up all night, just talking about different recovery modalities and how I can implement them. And while there were a lot of really cool things, hot, cold contrast, you know, specific protocols and all this other kind of stuff, the one thing that he told me that stood out more than anything else is just like training, your body will recover or will adapt to the recovery modality. So if you always use the recovery modality, it will cease to work. All right. So that's where, you know, if, it's say it's a lifter that I'm working with and they're starting to have issues with recovery. That's when I would say, all right, let's look at, you know, intra nutrition because I do think that has an effect and let's, let's introduce hot, cold contrast. Now, if they introduce that shit too soon, like people think it's going to help them gain faster then when they really need it, it's not going to work for them. And then once the meet's over or once the training cycle's over or the phase or whatever you want to call it's over, you know, deload, you know, back off a little bit, get rid of all the recovery modalities 
and let your body learn how to recover without that shit so it can be used again. And then over the period of an off season, or if it's just a recreational lifter, I think they should have serious times and less serious times. During the less serious times, experiment with different shit. You know, then try, you know, grass and or hot, cold contrast or, you know, massage and try all the different things and see what really works. And then the ones that seem to work really well, you know, file that away and call it gold and don't ever use it again until you're you're in a real serious phase of training and you start to get to a point where recovery is an issue. Then start pulling out of the gold box. You know, for some some people. Um, for me, chiropractic was always freaking amazing. So I will avoid it at all costs unless I'm in a serious training phase. Then I have issues with my back or issues recovering. Then I throw it in. That way I don't adapt to it. What I, what I find fascinating is if we ask this question to any other of our podcast guests, they probably list off like 10 supplements, take this vitamin, take this mineral, but then you have to think about it in the, in the wild. And if an animal is hurting, what do they do? The animal rests. It doesn't eat. It just stays in the same place and recovers itself and repairs itself that way. It doesn't go well, and start eating, you know, stuff off the ground. Oh, I got to get minerals. Oh, I got to get vitamins. It's well, the other, yeah. The other thing it does is limp around. So, the, you know, an injured animal does not spend a lot of time in rest mode. You know, they will, you know, shoot a deer in the leg. You know, it's going to it's going to find a way to limp around. You know, a dog has, you know, a hurt leg. It's going to find a way to keep limping around and then the limp slowly goes away. But here's the thing with, you know, keep in mind, I'm coming from a strength standpoint, not so much a bodybuilding. So my my nutrition knowledge, while I have a degree in that, it isn't, you know, where everybody else's is. I've always been under the impression if I'm in a calorie surplus, in other words, I'm not dieting to try to lose fat or to lose weight, I should pretty much be covering all my nutritional vitamin needs you know, and mineral needs with the exception of maybe vitamin D, depending upon where you live, and some essential fatty acids because people don't eat fucking fish. Everything else is pretty much covered. So what exactly is supplementing something that's already taken care of? going to help. You know, that's what I never understood with that. It's like you can go and use um, an Epsom salt bath, you know, and immediately know a difference, you know, from that or float, you know, and if you, the float, you're floating in magnesium. So there's, you know, that as well, but you are right. Most people want to try to, here's a recovery supplement, take this, and I do think intranutrition can help if somebody's starting to run against that wall, but that could be as simple as just drinking a Coke or a Mountain Dew while you train, just getting sugars, glycogen into the muscle. You know, it's, it's probably not the best option, but you know. It when, was, I, when I used to power lift, I would notice like if I got glycogen in my system, I would get, be stronger during my lift. But now because my goals have changed, I don't do that. I go on my training fasted. What's your opinion about with powerlifting, the whole glycogen thing, getting glycogen in your system? Um, is that something that will actually help? Or is that, and I can go back to my powerlifting days when I had to make weight specifically, that I would, I would really, really kind of be strict into my weight. Then I'd wait after my weigh-in, then I would get sugars to try to recover, you know, uh, yeah. before I made, but it never seemed to work for me because I was so weak from, you know, the prior day or two that I was, I couldn't really push myself. It was those, those days where I was actually like not kind of hammering myself the days before. So if I was like three pounds over and I had to like bust my ass that day to get under, then I'm kind of going to my meat week anyway. So tell yeah. us a little bit about your knowledge on that. Well, if, if I'm working with a lifter, I'm going to want them, I call it glycogen full pretty much at all times, you know, unless they're fighting a weight class, then, then it becomes a little tricky situation. Um, but most of the times that's not the case. Um, and the reason for that isn't, it definitely will help with the training. It will help with the leverages. 
you know, it will help with, you know, how they feel and how they contract and all the other kind of stuff. It will help there, but I don't think it helps as much as people really think so. Where it really helps, though, is if they do have to cut weight the week before meat. If they're super glycogen loaded, that means they got a lot of fluid in the muscle and they're probably got fluid, you know, between the muscle and, you know, other areas. It's a lot easier for them to drop water when they have it than it is when they don't. You see what I'm saying? Um, so it's, it's, it makes for a far easier weight cut if, if they're thinking about that 10 weeks out. You know, most of the time, you know, they're not. So they go into the last week and they're five pounds over and they go to cut and it's a pain in the ass to cut and they feel like shit when it shouldn't have been anywhere near that hard. But from a nutritional standpoint, you know, if it's pre-workout or I, I think pre-workouts are fucking stupid. So that's a whole nother topic. But if it's the, the workout pre-workout meal, wh whatever works. I know some people that eat huge breakfasts and they go train. I know other people that if they did that, they throw up. I think everybody who's been training for a year, it, maybe even less, seriously, they know, you know, I can't train on a full stomach or I need a little bit of food in my stomach. And this is where nutritional gurus drive me fucking crazy sometimes. Like, if, if you've been, how long have you been training? 10 years, five years? I've been training for 10 years. How many years? I've been like 25 years. Okay, you've been training 25 years. Yeah. You, you fucking know if you can have food in your stomach before you train or after you train. But if, if I'm the, going to run like a 5K and I put food in my stomach, it's coming back up for sure. Yeah, okay. But if, I, if I do a lightweight training session, I can probably handle it. Yeah, you have more experience training your body than anybody else, right? But I guarantee if you hire, you know, half the nutritional gurus out there, they're going to tell you, you know, something that you know is completely fucking not right because you've done it, but then they won't listen to you where that's where the issue is, you know? So I think that, you know, as lifters mature, they need to learn how to become a little bit more, I call it audible ready. You know, they need to be able to listen to themselves a little bit and then question whoever they're consulting with and working with to be able to come up with the best answer because I have biases towards training. There's no doubt about that. I've been doing this my whole life. I've been coaching other lifters and helping them my whole life. But I have to realize that that bias can be very limiting to who I'm working with. So before I'm going to help somebody, I'm going to have a long conversation with them about what's worked and what's not worked. You know, because if 60%, let's say 60% they already have figured out, fuck, all I have to do is help them figure out the 40% they don't know. You know, that's coaching. You know, what's not coaching is taking somebody that's got 20 years experience and saying, here, do this. And all you had was a fucking questionnaire that was very general. To me, that's detraining. You know, that's that's going to run somebody backwards or get them hurt. Dude, we're, ready, we're already at an hour here. Yeah. I do want to touch on one more topic because I got a lot of listener DMs about it. Mm -hmm. Supplements. And lots and lots of people who said, ask Dave about creatine, ask Dave about pre-workouts, ask Dave about intra workouts, ask Dave about whey protein shakes. What are your thoughts on supplements as a whole? Are there a couple you recommend, a couple that you think are total junk? What are your thoughts? I think if you're in a calorie deficit, then you need to look at what should be supplemented, you know, because that's not in your diet. So that could be vitamins, minerals, and so forth. Does creatine work? Yes. Has it stood the test of time? Kinda, you know. If it was really the cat's ass, every lifter you know that is a big time lifter or a high intermediate lifter would be taking creatine. And across the board, we all know that's false. So is it worth the price, even though it's fairly cheap? Probably not. Why? Open your eyes. You know, there's clues all around. Um, intra workouts, I think, can make a difference if you're in a calorie deficit because it will help you recover because of the glycogen that you're losing while you're training. Uh, Pre-workouts, I think, are junk across the board. Um, I think that pre-workouts, um, it's just a stimulant. And when, here's the thing, and Justin Harris and I did a, a video on YouTube 
just specifically about this and the chemical aspect and all this other stuff. But if every training session you have to rely on something to get you amped up, again, like the recovery modalities, that's going to cease to stop working over a period of time. And you don't hear you don't have to be amped up for the whole entire fucking session, every set, every rep. You know, training doesn't work that way. So let's say you're a power lifter, right? And there might be one, two, maybe four sets throughout that one training day that really, really matter. I mean, that's the 80% or, or you know, that's the 20% and 80-20 rule. They still got to do all the other shit, but those four sets really matter. Those four sets, when you actually time the time under tension to do all four of them, it's probably under fucking two and a half minutes. So if I have somebody say, I have to use a pre-workout, I'll throw back in their face. So what you're telling me is you can't fucking focus for two and a half minutes out of an hour and a half. Seriously, you're mentally that fucking weak that you can't pull your shit together for 15, 20 seconds to do one fucking lift. Heaven forbid, yeah, they don't have a monster or Red Bull or coffee or something four day lift, you know, because that can. I've I've had probably a pre workout five times in my entire life, and it made me sick every time. So yeah, I mean, I don't see what the big deal is. Just get some music, some some good music you like, and go work out. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Yeah, I I don't. Well, it's it's the marketing, it's the hype, it's a lot of other stuff that's kind of in there. And you know, if if some people need it, if they're tired because they work all day and it's going to help a little bit, you know, that's fine. You know, whatever, but it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be a cup of coffee. It can be, you know, one monster drink. It doesn't have to be fucking 1,000 milligrams of caffeine. Like, you fucking serious? You know, if, it's, it, it, to me, it's just a trend, you know, that 15 years from now, nobody's going to be taking free workouts. You know, it's like NO2 from years ago. You know, how many people are taking that shit now? Fucking nobody. You know, so... The things that last the period, that last time from a supplement standpoint, are probably the things that people want to look into. So when we look at those things, what are they? Fish oils. You know, they've stood the test of time. Uh, Vitamin D, you know, that stood the test of time. Um, You know, both multivitamin and multimineral, that's kind of stood the test of time. Uh, Protein shakes, that's, they've kind of stood the test of time. But again, that's a supplement. So that's for the people that can't get the protein through food. I still think they're better off getting it through food. And I don't think anybody else, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. You know, so if you need to get 200 grams of protein, but your schedule only allows, you know, 150 grams because of work or whatever it is, then supplement the other 50 grams with a shake. What shake to take? I've been drinking that stupid shit forever. You know, some of it makes me shit, some of it don't. So if I need to use a protein shake, I'm gonna take the one that doesn't fuck my stomach up and make me wanna shit. You know, and as odd as it is that for me, when I was dieting, muscle milk was the only one that didn't give me problems, which happened to be the one that gave everybody else problems. Um, so it's, I think it's that, you know, when. If somebody's in that position, I typically tell them, don't ever buy the biggest container, buy the smallest one that you can find, see how your body deals with it. And if you're shitting it out five minutes after you drink it, you probably don't want to take it, you know, and then find something else, you know. But I would probably do a shake over a bar. You know, the bars you're going to start getting into more chemicals and shit like that. Dave, there's so much good information in this podcast. I really appreciate you doing it. For our listeners, how can they learn more about Elite FTS, about yourself? What are your Instagram? What's your website? Things like that. The website is EliteFTS.com. The Instagram is at under the bar. The I am on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. You know, I, I Instagram's where I put most of the focus, and most of my time on Instagram is actually spent answering DMs. I will answer every single DM, even if it's a hater and I got to reply back just with something like, so, you know, I reply to every DM. I do not reply to messenger. I don't reply to a lot of the, well, that's really uh, the Twitter. I don't, because they're too spammed up at this point, you know? So, you know, after being on the platforms for so long, 
you guys may have the same issue. It's just, it's a train wreck where right now Instagram is still pretty clean. You know, I get some fucked up DMs every now and again. I get somebody that wants to sell me weightlifting belts from China, but it's not the whole thing. So if they want to get a hold of me personally, that is the easiest way. I do my own social media. I don't have somebody else that does that, at least the Instagram. Um, and then the website, you know, I got a blog that is kind of the hub for all the content I put out. So if I do write, and most of the stuff I put on Instagram is more uh, microblogging than anything else. So even all those end up being repurposed or are repurposed from my own blog, which is on the website. For our listeners, I will have all those social media links in the Elite Experts website in the show notes. You can just click the show notes and check those out. For your host, Trevor Kuritsen, for my co-host, Steve Smee, and for our special guest, Dave Tate, founder of Elite FTS. This is another episode of Evolutionary Radio. Live your life, look good doing it. Thanks for listening. Thank you.